You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Eleven months ago, all seriousness, eleven months ago, crazy, eleven months ago, we set out on a journey together in worship to read the Bible from cover to cover. Our primary tool for understanding this task was this book, The Story, an an abridged, chronological, seamlessly woven together narrative of the scriptures. And if you haven't been with us or if you forgot somewhere along the way, our goal in making this pilgrimage was to gain a sense of the whole story, to better understand who God is, his character and purposes, as well as to better understand ourselves, who we are, and how our stories are inseparable from the grander narrative the Lord is shaping through this world. I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. That's in your Bible, that's on, uh, I don't know what page, um, but uh, the Bible in the pew, it's near the end. Um, <laughs> that was easy, right? <laughs> and then the Bible version app, if you just open that up, it'll take you right there. And as you're opening up to Revelation, what I want us to briefly consider before we look at this is what have we learned? I mean, 11 months, what have we learned? From the beginning, the very beginning, we encountered a, a creator, our God, whose desire is not only to give us life, not only to give us a place to live, but a creator, a God, whose desire is also to be with us, for us to make our home with him. And from the very beginning, what we've learned is even though we reject that divine proposal over and over again, vainly presuming to know better and going our own way, our heavenly father refuses to give up on us. Through laws and sacrifices, through judges, priests, prophets, and kings of a people set apart, a nation called Israel, through times of blessing and times of judgment, through times of great expansion, and through times of exile and abandonment, we have witnessed a God who constantly improvises on the theme of grace and offers us second chances. Second chances, even again as we persist in being fickle, wayward, forgetful, and ungrateful. The relent, this relentless pursuit of us by God knew no limits. As we turned the page and got into act two and witnessed our creator do something outrageous and beautiful, incomprehensible and risky, God put on skin. God put on skin and came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, God reveals just how far he is willing to go to get us back as he innocently and yet willingly suffers, bleeds, and dies on a cross for us. Through this act of sacrifice to cover the guilt and shame of our rebellion and failure, God takes on all we are so we could become more than we ever imagined or thought we could be, forgiven and free. And just in case in that moment at the cross we doubted God could do such a thing, Jesus rose from the grave demonstrating the Lord's absolute victory of life over death, of hope over despair, 
of love over hate. With the resurrection, we witnessed as new, never-conceived possibilities of how God could work through us and in the world came into being. Divine authority and power, the keys to the kingdom established by Jesus were bestowed on a group of everyday people like you and I through the filling of the Holy Spirit. The first disciples became the ambassadors of a movement, the church, the body of Christ that began to change the world from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's where we've been over 11 months. That's the story, and all of it leads here to chapter 31 in this book, but what's known as the book of Revelation in our Bibles. Revelation is a vision given to the apostle John while he was exiled on Patmos, this island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And as we enter into this book, as we finish our time in the story, it is said that perception is reality. Perception is reality. Well, this vision comes to John at a time of great persecution for the church. John's perception initially is things look bad, like they're getting worse rather than better. By all appearances, the days of the church are numbered, and Christ is nowhere to be seen. Is John's perception the reality? Is our perception of things reality? Or is there another point of view to consider? A bigger, wider vision for us to grasp? That's what we'll consider as we look at the book of Revelation. And as a way of us appreciating this huge, cosmic, incredible vision, we're going to read the end as a way of looking back. Because sometimes the end is the best lens for us to look back. So to understand the whole of the book, I'm going to read to you a couple of verses from chapters 21 and 22 at the, uh, from Revelation. So first, Revelation chapter 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And if you'll skip with me to chapter 22. Again, looking at the first five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear, clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Just a smattering in just what we read at the very end gives you a sense of the whole of this book. And what I'd like to do to, to this morning is discuss three things. First, I want us to talk about the uniqueness of this book. I want us to answer the question, what exactly are we reading when we read the book of Revelation? That's number one. Number two, I want us to then consider the long-term view the book of Revelation offers us. What are we supposed to see in John's vision? That's number two. And finally, I want us to reflect on what we can take away from this unique book in the short term. How is John's vision supposed to shape our perspective of our lives today? So three things. And the first is to ask ourselves, what exactly are we reading? What exactly are we reading? Filled with talk and descriptions of angels and horsemen, of a dragon and a beast, of seals being broken open and a great lake of fire and judgment, people can get really worked up about this book. This final chapter of the scriptures of the story has caused more controversy, dividing people in the church rather than bringing them together. And that's sad. It's tragic, really. This divide is so bad, and I don't know which camp you fall into. Maybe you fall somewhere in the middle. This divide caused often by the book of Revelation can lead some people to avoid, avoid reading this book altogether. I've met people who've never read it, don't want to read it, wish it wasn't in there. And then there are people on the other side who read nothing else in their Bible but the book of Revelation. That's all they read at the expense of everything else. And I think that much of this confusion and anxiety about Revelation can be cleared up if we appreciate what exactly we're reading. If we understand that as we look at this book, there are three kinds of literature here, three kinds of literature. When you read the book of Revelation right from the start, you ha cannot miss that this is a letter. This is a letter. It's a personal correspondence from one person to a group of other people. The Apostle John writes this letter to seven regional named churches on the mainland of Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These churches were actual faith communities living in a known period of history that were facing identifiable circumstances. And so John writes this letter to them as a means of pastoral encouragement. So this is a letter, just like the letters that Paul or Peter write, or John writes elsewhere. But it's also, Revelation is also a book of prophecy. And most of us, when we hear the word prophecy, we think about predicting the future, right? We hear prophecy, we think about predicting the future. But what we need to remember is biblically, prophecy is not so much about predicting the future, what might happen, as it is talking about declaring the playing out of what already is. So it's not about saying a new scenario is going to be created as much as it's declaring what God has already purposed to do. And the reason why it's not predicting what might happen is because God's will is unchanging. John, in this book, in other words, is not predicting how God might act, He's declaring God's will for the future, what God purposes to do through the church in the world. And the intention is knowing what will happen is intended to encourage and provoke obedience. So this book that we're reading is a letter, but it's also prophecy. But then third, it's also what we call an apocalypse. That's a heavy word in our culture, right? Apocalypse. Apocalypse is a Greek word that simply means an unveiling or a revealing. The name of this book comes from that word. It's called the apocalypse. It's called the revelation. It's the unveiling. It's the revealing. 
what, what this type of literature is about, and we don't just see it here, we see it elsewhere, but here, through John, God wants to reveal something to his people. He specifically wants to reveal how heavenly or eternal realities are intersecting with earthly or linear ones. Right? We've been taught by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray is, may it be on earth as it is in heaven, right? We've been taught in the Lord's Prayer to pray for heaven and earth to intersect, to overlap, and ultimately merge as one. So what apocalyptic literature does is it attempts to describe this intersection and overlap. And that's why when you read apocalyptic literature, you see the use of symbolism and numbers, People being represented by animals or natural phenomena like earthquakes are reflecting historical events. Because what's happening here is John is doing his best to describe what he sees using words inadequate for the task. Right? And that's why what you may notice is many of these symbols and numbers that John uses have their origins in the Old Testament. Because what John's doing to try to describe what cannot be put into words is he's referencing back to visions from prophets like Isaiah and Daniel and as a way of saying, what I just saw was like that. What I just saw was like that. that that's, that's what it was like. Now, letter, prophecy, apocalyptic literature. It's because the book of, the, of Revelation consists of these three distinct and yet clearly interrelated types of literature that reading, reading this book can be confusing. It can be intimidating. Like I said, so, so much so that many avoid it. But I want to say, if you're someone who's never read the book of Revelation, if you're someone who said, I wish it wasn't in here, you can't skip or ignore a chapter of the story. You know that, right? You miss something. And you certainly can't skip or ignore the last chapter of the story. So it's here for a reason. We have to read it. And we, we, I'm hopeful that we won't be as confused or as intimidated by the time we're done today. But like I said, this book can be so confusing and intimidating, while some may avoid it, the confusion and intim intimidation of the book leads others to be challenged by it, right? Some not respecting the distinctions within the book of Revelation leads others to get lost, right? They get misguided as they literally or chronologically try to interpret how every verse, every symbol, or every number in the book lines up. And there's countless books, countless teachers out there who have made this their bread and butter. For centuries, people have been trying to break down, decipher, and construct a linear timeline of what just John describes in this book. But here's the thing. So far, everybody who's gone down that path has been united by one result. They've got it all wrong. No one, I repeat, no one has been able to pull this off. And yet, 2,000 years later, we just still keep trying. And no one has been able to pull this off after 2,000 years shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise or shock any of us because Jesus himself told us repeatedly, no one, knows the hour or the day. Jesus went on to say, it is not for us to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. The point of the book of Revelation is not to specifically identify the correspondence of every single symbol or number John uses. We're not given John's vision from God in order to construct an end times calendar. No one standing before the Lord is jeopardized or forfeited because of not figuring out which millennial view, that's the infamous thousand years of revelation, is correct. And yet some people live like their salvation's on the line. 
if they don't know which way it goes in terms of the thousand years of Revelation. And, and I'm saying to you very clearly, how are we to read this book? We're not supposed to read the book this way. We're not supposed to avoid it, but we're not supposed to be so fixated on trying to break it down and decipher it as a timeline that we can lay out. That is not why we are given this book. Jesus makes that clear if no one else does. So then what are we supposed to see through this vision given to John? We've talked about what exactly are we reading. So now we come to point two. What exactly are we supposed to see through this vision given to John? And the long-term view of the book of Revelation, really the point of John's vision is twofold. Two main ideas. The first is Jesus is coming back as he promised. Jesus is coming back as he promised. It's a for sure thing. And this is huge. The second coming of Christ is not some minor belief, right? Our millennial view, minor belief. The second coming of Christ is not a minor belief because it's mentioned in the Gospels, in the writings of the Apostle. It's even mentioned in our creeds that Christ is coming again. And John has a vision to know that is absolutely certain Christ is coming back as he promised. And Revelation details that when Jesus returns, everyone, everyone will see him for who he is. Those who have been unable to see Jesus because of a different cultural or religious upbringing, those who have been unable to see Jesus because of abuse, violence, or distortion by those who claim to represent him, they will finally be able to see Jesus for who he is as their Savior and Lord, the one for whom they have been searching and waiting all of their life. Jesus is coming back as he promised. And Revelation declares that when he returns, everyone will see him for who he is. Those who have been in willful denial, perhaps even in mocking or caustic rebellion of Christ, purposefully choosing to forsake forgiveness, daring to deny the truth, and presuming to reject grace, they will see Jesus for who he is. The one who judges the living and the dead the one upon whom their life, whether they have admitted it or not, has always depended. The first thing that John sees and wants us to see is Jesus is coming back. Related to this, there's two main things I said that John wants us to see that John sees is Jesus is coming back, but related to this, John, what becomes clear to John through his vision is that God in Christ wins. God in Christ wins. I don't know if you caught this, and this is part of why I read chapter 21 and 22, but there's a certain intentional and visible symmetry between what is revealed to John here at the end and what is declared in the beginning, in the first pages of the story in the book of Genesis. If you might want to mentally bookmark this to look at this, but consider this. In the beginning of the story, our father created a garden. He gave us the canvas of the cosmos, right, and told us to cultivate it, to fill it, and what do we see at the end of the story? At the center of the garden, the garden comes back again, but at the center of the garden is a city. And this city is filled with the nations of the world in a collaborative and creative partnership of worshiping and glorifying God together. Let me give you another one. In chapter one of Revelation, God creates the sun and the stars for there to be light and life. You heard me read it. In the last chapter of Revelation, this city in the garden does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives light and life. God's presence is the lamp. 
The whole Bible, in other words, leads to this picture in Revelation. The seed of all that's promised in the first pages of the book of the Bible are seen as coming into bloom in the last pages of the last book of the Bible. And the point of it all is, everything the Lord has desired for us and his creation has come to pass. God wins. God gets what he wants. Right? Everything intended for eternity, but crushed by death, is resurrected. All that has been broken will be restored. The, lo the lost paradise of Genesis becomes the found paradise of Revelation. The God from whom humanity once hid in shame now dwells with us, and we with him in rapturous delight. I don't know, when, every time I read Revelation 21 and 22, the whole book, but Revelation 21 and 22, I read it and I'm like, man, that sounds so good. Someday, right? Someday. This is what I want you to understand. Not someday. No, what John sees is happening now. Heaven is breaking into earth now. The weight and glory of eternity is infiltrating this ever-present darkness and the uncertainty of this world today. We tend to see things, this is why it's complicated, right? We tend to see things in a linear fashion, within time, right? We talk of yesterday, we talk of today, and we talk of tomorrow. We're a very in-the-moment kind of people, right? As a result... What God in Christ has promised, what Jesus tells us is going to happen, can seem far away, out of reach. For John, understand, John's just like us. For John, prior to this vision, John's in the same place. Many years have passed since the movement of the church first caught fire. Living in exile, right? He's been isolated. He's been imprisoned. Watching followers of Jesus like himself face increasing persecution and suffering, many of them being led to their deaths, has left him confused and uncertain. He's not alone. Fear and doubt are starting to creep into the whole body of Christ because it looks like the fire of faith is dying, that the church is going to be snuffed out, that the way of Rome, rather than the way of Christ, will rule the order of the day. John, in that moment, needs a vision of something different. But what John was given by God is not just a vision of the future. What is coming later? The Lord gave John some eternal perspective. John was given, and I know I'm getting heady, a vision outside of time. John is given a vision not just of the future, what is coming later. John is given a vision of how the future was already breaking into the present. Of how the forces of heaven are interceding now. This is the view of eternity. That's what I'm describing to you. Eternity, we often talk about eternity and we say eternity is infinite, endless time. Wrong. Eternity is no time. No time. There is no past or future with God. I am that I am, I will be that I will be. All is present. The Lord doesn't take a day off or get backlogged. You know that, right? Man, these people, I need a day off. The Lord doesn't take a day off. The Lord doesn't get backlogged. Man, I hope I can get caught up on some of this stuff. All events, think about it, are present to God and the Lord moves and acts. So really, it's our perspective, framed by time, that distorts our perception. And that's why we speak as if God is delayed, or if God is absent. 
Think about that. Do you really think that God is like, oh, I, I got hung up on the freeway. I was trying to get there. Do you really think that God's like, oh, you know, can I have a day off? Can I get a couple days for myself? But our perception of time, we see God moving in time, and so we act as if God's delayed or if God is absent. If, if, I'm, if I'm losing you, an analogy to help you understand that what John is getting, this eternal perspective, an analogy I often use that I think is helpful is to think of a parade. I don't know about many of you, but one of my traditions on Thanksgiving is to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Love that. Okay, some of you are shaking your heads. John, you should watch it. You know, just telling you. <laughs> okay. So, any parade. doesn't have to be the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Think about this. If you're on the street for the parade, you see the various floats, the giant balloon animals, and the marching bands pass by you in sequence, right? You only experience what is right in front of you. You with me? However, if you were to go high up on top of one of the buildings overlooking the parade route, you'd be able to see the entire parade. Now, it's all present to you. By our sight alone, we can only perceive and experience one event at a time. From God's vantage point, in terms of how the Lord works, all events are present, happening now. Consider the work of the cross. Let me push this a little bit further. Consider the work of the cross. People often ask when we talk about the cross, well, what about those of faith who died before Jesus' work at the cross? We can't go back in time, so what about them? The salvation Jesus accomplishes on the cross and through the resurrection is eternal. It's not limited by time. So when we talk about the cross, when we think about that moment, that's an experience of us seeing eternity impact time. In that moment, the cross and the resurrection, Jesus saves both those who looked forward to him in faith in the past, just as he saves those who look back to him in faith from the future. I titled this sermon, <laughs> uh, Back to the Future, and this was my indirect nod to that classic 80s trilogy. I don't know how many of you have seen Back to the Future. And I titled it Back to the Future because that's what I understand the Lord is doing here with John, and by extension with us. We are being taken back to the future. For us, once again, the beginning and the end of the universe are two horizons, right? We live a distance from the horizon. We can see a point on the horizon from a distance, but we don't know what it's like, right, until we get there. Revelation is about God taking John there, back to the future, to see it, experience, and know what it's like so John could see it here in the present. I have no idea if I've lost you, but I know what I'm talking about, so I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> What John describes as a vision of the future is the reality of God working, bringing what we perceive as the future in the midst of what we call the present. Revelation is given to us. We need to read it, to cherish it, to come back to it because we need the same point of view that John did. We need an eternal perspective because let's be honest, 2,000 years later, many of us perceive and feel as those in John's day did, that by all appearances, the surrounding world appears unchanged, very much the same as it ever was, if not worse. Acts of violence erupt all around us, be it the rage of a lone gunman rioting in neighborhood streets or even just the devastating wake of a hurricane. 
We look around and death and decay, disease, starvation, etc. still seem to rule the day. Creation groans as do our very bones as they age and break down within us. And if we're honest, we ask ourselves, is the whole world going to hell in a handbasket? Has anything changed? Some people's view of Revelation is actually shaped by that question. That yes, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and that's how it's going to be until everything gets better. And I say to you, wrong! Wrong! That is a misreading of the vision that is given to John. The vision of, of Revelation of Christ coming back is that Jesus' return has already begun. We need this different perspective. We need a view of revelation to see that when we declare Jesus is coming back and that God and Christ wins, that's not a prediction of the future. That's the reality that's breaking into our present. And if you say to yourself, well, how, how can we see that? How can we see this idea that Jesus is coming back has already begun? We can see it through the endurance and growth of his body, the church. Despite, think about this, despite incredible opposition, life-threatening persecution, even tremendous, can we be honest, internal failure within the church, the body of Christ continues to rise. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of followers of Christ bear witness to the risen and living person of Jesus, the authority and power of the Holy Spirit, and the reality of the kingdom of God. We can see that Jesus is coming back. He's on his way already in the truth that his church, his body, just keeps coming back stronger than ever. John, in his own day, needed to see that Rome did not have the final say in the world in which he lived. And through his vision, we have been given the same perspective. No matter where we perceive authority and power being exercised, whether it's through acts of terror, the influence of global corporations, or the saber rattling between nations, the reign of Christ is greater still. And we can see this. You say, where do we see that? We see this through the countless people around the world, day by day, coming to Christ and being baptized becoming empowered and changed through the grace, truth, and love of the message of the cross and resurrection. And even though our perception of it is often clouded by news reporting and media more consumed with what sells than what inspires, don't kid yourself. See what God gives John the vision to see. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is victorious even now is visible through the continuing endurance of forgiveness and reconciliation in a world that is consumed by retaliation and vindictiveness. That Jesus wins can be seen still today through the persistent call and growing mobilization for mercy and justice in lives that have been marked by enslavement, oppression, and marginalization. We are not waiting for the future. The future is coming to us. We've considered what exactly we're reading and what we're not with the book of Revelation, and I've now taken us clarifying what we're supposed to see through this vision given to John. And the last piece is for us to reflect on how the book of Revelation is intended to shape how we live our lives today. And the answer to that question, how is Revelation supposed to shape how we live our lives today? If we understand the vision, how is that supposed to shape how we live day to day? The answer, the key to answering this question is paying attention to the opening of this book. Okay? Before all the dramatic and evocative imagery has its, uh, starts appearing, the initial chapters of this book contain letters from the risen Jesus to seven churches. 
And if you haven't read these letters before, each letter has its own tilt. Each letter to each church has its own tilt, but the overall message to them is the same. In the midst of all that is happening, the risen Jesus says, don't be lukewarm. Jesus says, do not remain unengaged. Despite how things appear, no matter what happens, the risen Jesus calls these churches to stand firm and go forward. Before the temptation and pressure of other influences, even in the midst of great persecution, Christ encourages them to be bold and not fold. Be bold and not fold. Reading Revelation and being given the gift to see what John sees, we, like those seven churches, have been given the same encouragement and marching orders. Having been given this glorious future, the vision of this glorious future breaking into the present, knowing that Jesus is coming back now, that Christ is victorious today, we cannot sit back and wait for tomorrow to come. We cannot sit back and just content ourselves with going to heaven when we die or killing time until Jesus returns. And throughout the story, that has been the continual place where I have pushed us. The vision that God gives John and by extension gives us that Jesus himself says to these seven churches is what he says to us is do not be lukewarm. You've got to be engaged. And then one of the most powerful images in these letters is this image of Jesus standing at the door knocking. Beloved, Jesus is standing at the door knocking now. We have to open the door. We have to let him into our lives and we have to start living tomorrow today. We have to stop burying our heads in the sands of time and instead have our vision lifted up to the perspective of eternity. You need to open your eyes. Are you opening your eyes? Are you opening your eyes and seeing where the creator of the universe, where the risen and living Christ is reigning on your street, in your neighborhood, in the particular corner of the world where the Lord has called you? Are your eyes open or do you insist on continuing to be blinded by all the anger, all the suspicion, all the cynicism circulating all around us? What do you choose to see Instead of choosing to see anger, instead of choosing to embrace suspicion and cynicism, choose to see what John sees, what God shows us will be, what is coming even now. Can you see? Do you see a world without unemployment, without soup kitchens, without welfare lines? Do you see a world without disease, without hunger, without loneliness? Do you see a world without the divisions of class, denominations, politics, gender, culture, or the colors of one's skin? Do you see it? Do you see a world without hospitals or cemeteries or widows or orphans? Do you see a world without genocide or terrorism, refugees and enslaved persons? Do you see a world where the only tears we have to give are tears of joy, where the only cries that we, leave, we burst out in are cries of laughter? Do you see a world where peace isn't a compromise or a bargain for some at the expense of others? But do you see a world where peace is experienced by everyone in all its fullness? Peace with God, peace with oneself, peace between each other, peace with creation itself, the fullness and completeness of eternal peace, shalom. Do you see it? Do you see it? Guided by this vision, instead of closing ourselves off from others, let us open up our homes. 
Is your home your retreat, your sanctuary, or is it the kingdom of God, the embassy of the kingdom of God? Do you look at your home as a place to open up so people can see what John saw, what we see? Are you closed off, or are you opening up your life, your mind and your heart, to listen and learn about the people and situations the Lord has placed around you? There are people around you. I don't need to make them up. They exist around you now that the Lord's placed around you. Do you know them? Do you know their story? Do you care? Do you share yours? Are you closed, just huddling in fear, waiting for the other shoe to drop, or are you open, curious, willing to listen, willing to learn from the very people that the Lord has already put around you? If you can see what John sees, then you can break the habit of looking past people or through them. If you see what John sees, you can let your vision be trained to notice and to recognize where the Spirit is on the move so that we can move with the Spirit. And all along the way, when we see what John sees, with every breath we take, with every step we take, we need to continue to be in the, in the word, in the story. We've read the story cover to cover. I'm terrified as today we end that everyone's gonna go, whoo, check it off the list, done that. The whole point of this was for us to know the story so that we would read it again and again, that each time we would go deeper, that we would let God's word each time get inside us even more, and that in that experience we would worship. That through the word, through the story, we would hear our Father speaking to us through his word, and through that word we would be prompted and guided to speak back to him, to pray, to listen to his heart even as we share our own because, beloved, as you read the story again and again, you will continue to find God's story weaving in and through your own, inviting you to trust, offering you abundant life, an opportunity to live faithfully, purposefully, and meaningfully, to let God's kingdom come and his will to be done in you, through you, and to share that life that kind of life, that gracious, loving, and healing life that Jesus brings, who reigns at the center of it with others. Do you see it? Back to the future, right? Doc Brown had to harness, does anyone remember? 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. Doc Brown had to harness 1.21 gigawatts of power from a lightning bolt to send Marty back to the future. Beloved, we have far more power on our side. The power of the Holy Spirit. Power not only to shape what we see in the future, but how we live that future in our present. Are you getting this? In the end, that's the true mark of discipleship, right? Everyone wants to know, how do I know? What does it mean to follow Jesus and grow in Christ? Here it is. The true mark of discipleship is when our story becomes his story. When our life becomes connected and empowered, not by the limits of what we can see temporally, but when our life becomes connected and empowered by the vision of how the Lord is bringing his eternal promises for us into our here and now. The book of Revelation was never intended as a preemptive calendar for us to chart the end of the world. Let's be done with that. Because truly, what's revealed through this last chapter of the story is there's no such thing as the end. 
The eternal perspective of Revelation enables us to see that God's story is never really finished, but keeps on being written with the story of your life and mine and the lives of those still to come. With every new breath of life, another chapter begins to be written. With every move towards Christ, every conversation, every encounter with Jesus, the word becomes flesh anew. With every act of justice, expression of mercy, movement of compassion, and gesture of divine love, the kingdom of God comes near and closer to us all. Perception is reality. What point of view are you taking? Are you living based upon what you can see? Or are you living based upon what the Lord has shown us? Are you hopelessly waiting for our future with God and Christ to come someday? Or are you living hopefully out of the vision we have been given of our future that has already started? Jesus is at the, the door of our lives knocking. Let's walk through the door Jesus opens before us today, living the shalom, the glory Christ has already prepared for us, realizing, proclaiming, and sharing all things made new today, and inviting everyone we meet along the way to join us. Amen?